Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The feed pipes were synced up to iTunes with care, in hopes that the jodcast in time would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of nebulae danced in their heads, and Mamma in her kerchief, and I in my cap, had settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When from the computer arose such a pinging, I sprang from my chair to see what was singing. Away to the PC as fast I could go, I minimized Minesweeper and loaded the show. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wandering ears should appear but a poem to open the jodcast so dear. With a New Zealand accent so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be our Nick. He spoke all his verse and then handed it on, and onwards it travelled through every one. Now David, now Stuart, now Megan and Ian, and Roy Smits and Tim, with his voice watch they lean, to the top of the show, to the top of it all. Now start it up, move it on, let's have a ball. And there then the music began to be played, I knew the astronomy was well on its way, so then to my software the knowledge it flew, and into my ears as it now does to you. The Jodcast, season's greetings from Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, Nick Rattenbury and Roy Smits. The Jodcast. Yule issue. Hello and welcome to the final Jodcast episode for 2008. I'm Nick Rattenbury and with me is Stuart Lowe. Hi Nick, hi everybody. Yes, yeah, so it's been a fantastic year and thank you very much to our Jodcast audience for listening to us throughout the year and hello to all our new audience members who have started listening to us recently. Do you realise, Nick, that that's nearly three years we've done of the Jodcast? It seems it seems longer. <laughs> it seems so much longer. Yes, um, as of the next episode, the January first uh, episode, which may or may not come out exactly on January first, but uh, the, we'll try our best. The January episode, we will be three years old. So thank you very much to everybody who has supported us over the years. And with this being our just before Christmas episode, it's the end of term here at the Jodcast. So we we've got our We've not wearing school uniform. No, we're in Mufti, and we're, we've got <laughs> we're the ball. what? Mufti. Did you not use that expression? No, that sounds quite dodgy. Mufti. <laughs> mufti. <laughs> not wearing uniform. You are wearing Mufti. Civilian clothing. Uh, I've never heard that before. You've never heard that before. No. So it's a very informal episode this time through. We have an interview with Philip Best about LoFAR, the low frequency array. We have Christmas gift ideas for last minute buying. We have your feedback. But first, before all of that, um, let's talk about the Jodcast video. Yes, the next two Jodcast videos were recorded earlier this year down at the Royal Observatory Greenwich. We had a great time. The weather was absolutely spectacular. So if anybody is in any doubt about whether the weather can be good in England, <laughs> do watch these videos. If nothing else, you'll see London under a perfect blue sky. It is an... As Nick said, we have two episodes rather than just one this time as a special Christmas bonus. It's our gift from us to you. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah. <laughs> so please, if you do, li if you are listening to this, do please get onto the website and take a look at the videos. Of course, we've gone to a lot of effort to expand what the Jodcast can do. We went down there with our fancy new camera kit and recorded some fantastic people talking about 
the longitude problem, how the longitude problem was solved using clocks. And the second episode is talking about the observatory itself and how it is moving on with its brand new planetarium. So do check out both those episodes. They'll be available online before Christmas. And so moving on from an iconic and historic observatory to an observatory of the future, Nick went to talk to Philip Best about the low-frequency array. So joining me now is Dr. Philip Best from the University of Edinburgh, and you're here to talk to us today about a problem, a problem with galaxies, particularly the number of galaxies. Tell us a little bit about the problem that we face. This is a, a problem with something we call the, the galaxy luminosity function. So this is the, the number of galaxies that there are in the universe as a function of, of how bright they are. So the fact that we, what we observe is, is uh, a, a large number of faint galaxies and a much smaller number of, of bright galaxies. Now with, uh, with our models of galaxy formation, we can, we can predict roughly how many galaxies there should be as a function of, of brightness, but Historically, there's been a, a long-standing problem that we've never been able to get this to to match quite what we what we observe. So, how do we actually observe these galaxies? The the number of galaxies we simply take a telescope and look towards the direction of sky and count the number of bright and faint galaxies. Yes, yes, it's simply that uh, with with a, a spectroscopic survey, so you can tell how how far they are away. Some of the major surveys that have been carried out, like the the two degree field galaxy redshift survey or the the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, so you you measure the sort the galaxies. Um, how many there are in a given volume of, of space that are that are bright and that are that are less bright. Generally we expect to see more faint galaxies than bright galaxies simply because they're going to be more further away. In a, well, the volume is going to be larger further away. Well this is this is faint as in, in terms of the the luminosity, not uh, so we observe more that are that appear faint, but this is actually faint as in that they're they're intrinsically uh, less less luminous, right. so they they have sort of lower masses, lower numbers of stars makes them them less luminous, and we are I mean we observe uh, more faint ones. This is a thing that we we see when we look at at galaxies at all wavelengths in the optical, in the in the radio, in the X-rays. There's always more more faint things uh, than there are than there are uh, bright luminous objects. Is this uh, for a very good reason, or is this just the way it is? Uh, well, largely this is this is uh, the way it is. This is about how uh, how galaxies form and how structure forms in the universe through the the coming together of of dark matter, so dark matter particles, which are the 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 particles that we can't see in the universe, not normal. Uh, what we call baryonic matter, the stuff you and I are, are made out of. Uh, these uh, these are the, the predominant form of mass in the universe is this this dark matter and this clumps together hierarchically uh, so it grows as the universe evolves from the early stages uh, coming together in, in initially in very small clumps and then those small clumps merge up into into larger and larger clumps and this is something that we can we can model very well it the, the predominant uh, force that's involved is just gravity and we understand gravity very well indeed and now in in recent years we've we've got a, a very good measurement for the cosmological parameters of the universe the the uh the typical density of the universe and the the uh the lambda the so-called cosmological constant and the the hubble constant as well with all of these as inputs we can model incredibly well how the dark matter should clump and and grow together in the universe um and 
it forms in many more of the smaller clumps than, than the larger clumps. Now, the problem with, with galaxy formation is that the physics of, of baryonic matter, the, the sort of the gas and that makes stars and, and the, part, the particles that make you and I, this is much more messy. There's more than just gravity involved. There's many other forces uh, that, that are involved in these and many other processes that, that come in. I mean, you get uh, this, this obviously, it falls under gravity like the dark matter does to, to form clumps, form galaxies, but these then form stars. Stars reheat their environment, which heats the gas. Uh, at the end of a star's life, it goes uh, off in a supernova, the most massive stars at least, and they feed back a lot of energy into their into their environments. And so there's, there's a lot of, if you like, more messy physics that, that goes on in, in terms of, of galaxy formation. And this is this is the problem that's that's long faced astronomers is is how then to to understand from our, our picture of how many dark matter clumps there are as a function of mass how many galaxies there should be as a function of, of luminosity and, and that's a much more much more uh, difficult problem so we can simulate the universe in terms of the dark matter quite well well we think we can do it quite well because we're only dealing with gravity and we understand gravity well so there have been large simulations which will model a universe comprised mainly of dark matter which is what we believe the universe is actually uh, made up and we let the thing run little clumps of dark matter form and then they coalesce they merge they get bigger and we have a, a universe of dark matter structures now what you're saying is that the formation of a galaxy is not just a arising from a dark matter clump there's going to be stars made of baryonic matter like you and i influencing the way that the galaxy itself is being formed not just through the uh, action of gravity to return to the problem that we mentioned right at the start we have a mismatch between what these simulations are telling us about how many galaxies of what brightness should be and what we actually observe. Tell us a little bit more about exactly these differences. Yes, so there's, there's, uh, there's long been a problem from the very first uh, galaxy formation models that were, that were made that essentially our, our models of galaxy formation predicted far too many uh, faint galaxies or low luminosity galaxies and far too many bright high luminosity galaxies uh but they actually got it about right for galaxies close to the to the mass of our own things like the milky way um now the the issue of the of the of the faint or low luminosity galaxies has been has been understood for for some 10 or 20 years now and uh, and this is simply because um these galaxies are are very small uh, they they live in fairly shallow gravitational potential wells. So if they form some stars and those early stars go off in, in supernova explosions, the energy that's pumped into the environment by those uh, those supernova supernova feedback as we often as we often call it is sufficient to to heat a lot of the surrounding gas or maybe even blow it out of the galaxy and prevent that from forming any new stars and this means that these at this uh, low mass or low luminosity end the galaxies they don't grow as much as as you might predict if uh, the amount of light came out was simply proportional to the amount of mass that was there in in dark matter they end up to be a lot smaller or there's a lot fewer of them um, because of this. Now the bright end has been historically much more of a, of a problem. For many many years nobody really understood why the models predicted so many more bright galaxies than we uh, than we observed, why, why they weren't there in the in the real universe and um, and 
Also, we found that the galaxies that we observed in the universe tended to be red, comprised of old stars, without much, much ongoing star formation. The, the most massive galaxies is, is the elliptical galaxies. Uh, but whereas the, um, the models predicted these would still be much, would be relatively blue, with a, a reasonable amount of ongoing star formation. And w what was happening in the models was simply further gas was, was falling into the galaxies and, and forming stars. Young stars tend to be tend to look quite blue because they contain a lot of of massive stars, um, which are short lived, and and uh, massive stars uh, are very luminous and blue, and they dominate the light of the galaxy. Whereas the the old stars, if star formation stops, only the lower mass stars remain in the galaxy. The higher mass stars have have uh, have died already, and these are much are much redder. Mm. Um, so the the models predicted that we should see ongoing star formation which would carry on increasing the mass of the galaxy and make the galaxy appear bluer and that was very much in contrast with with observations what we saw so, were fewer galaxies and those that we did see were red yes exactly exactly and uh, and so something was clearly missing in the in the in the models and uh, what the models simply did was to to introduce some artificial way of of stopping the the gas cooling, but with no real physical understanding uh, behind that. And what what's changed in the last couple of years is people are beginning to get a a feel for what what might be causing this this problem. And this is uh, this particular class of of galaxy called active galactic nuclei, in particular those that emit predominantly in the radio wave band, so they're often called radio sources, mostly low luminosity or relatively low luminosity radio sources. And these pump out energy into their into their environment to see the active galactic nucleus. An active galactic nucleus is a is a black hole, a very massive black hole at the centre of a of a galaxy uh, that's that's accreting material and the, the sort of gravitational energy that's 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 released as this material falls towards the black hole actually emits a copious amount of, of energy um, in terms of it comes out to be about 10% of the, the rest mass energy of the of the falling material. The rest mass energy is just uh, mc squared where m is the mass of the particle Einstein's famous equation. Um, and much of this energy for these low luminosity radio sources comes out in the form of, of jets uh, jets of material from emitted close to the black hole that travel out into the galaxy over very large distances, thousands of light years, in some cases even millions of, of light years. And this energy can then be deposited back into the galaxy and it can reheat some of the, the gas that would otherwise cool and, and form stars and, and stop it from doing so. And this is why we don't see the galaxies continuing to grow and why we do see them to be red because they have no recent star formation. So in the same way that supernovae in the fainter galaxies blow out the gas in the galaxy, turning off star formation, so do the AGN in the more massive galaxies blow out the gas, or at least stop it from condensing into stars, and turns off the star formation. Yes, that's right. And it's, we should point out that it's not just, we're not talking about you know, a slight discrepancy here between what the models were telling us at the bright and the faint end of the galaxy number counts. Yeah. We're talking, there's a big difference, right, between what we, what the models were predicting and what we actually saw. Yes, I mean, if you, if you take the model and you predict that the, the light simply follows the mass, then at, at the bright end, we were 
we're out by a factor of 10 mm. in, the, in terms of the, the number of galaxies we, we predict. Now, obviously, we've, we've long known that this is wrong and there should be some missing physics. And as I say, little hand-waving tweaks have been, have been put into the models to, to make this, this right. And what, what's coming now is the physical understanding of what's, what's causing those, uh, those tweaks. So through the addition of some messy astrophysics into our models, have we achieved a correlation? Have we achieved a, a match to what we observe? Yes, yes. So the models have now, since about 2006, they've they've put in this. Now, I should say that that many of these these models have to implement these uh, these messy astrophysics, as we call it, in fairly simplified simplified ways. If we want to model the whole of of galaxy uh, evolution, and since about 2006, sort of simple prescriptions for how radio AGN uh, feedback might work have have been incorporated, and indeed they now do predict. Uh, galaxy luminosity functions and many other properties of the of, of the galaxies and their their distribution that that very much match with with observations not just in the local universe but also going going out in redshift my interest is is in trying to understand how some of this messy physics physics works i, I should say i'm not not one of the people that that does much of the modeling i'm, I'm more about trying to observe the radio sources and, and come to understand how it is that the that the radio AGN do feed energy into their environment, and to try to observationally test whether the amount of energy that comes out of of radio AGN activity is the right amount that we need. So to try to understand some of the the messy astrophysics that we put into the model, and uh, and in the local universe that does seem to seem to work. The amount of energy that the the radio AGN put into their environment is the right amount that we need to stop the gas from, from cooling. That's what recent observations show us. Bring us neatly on to the next topic, which is your involvement in LOFAR. You are the scientific coordinator for LOFAR. Tell us a little bit about LOFAR. Well, so the scientific coordinator for the UK part of LOFAR. LOFAR is, a, is a, the Low Frequency Array, which is a, a new radio telescope uh, that's being built in the Netherlands, but with extension around around Europe to other countries, including the United Kingdom. And um, we have a, a project called LOFAR UK, which is uh, concerned with with building part of the LOFAR uh, array here in the United Kingdom. And I'm the the scientific coordinator for for that project. A LOFAR is a new type of of radio telescope. Uh, it's not like the the traditional dish telescopes that you might see out at at Georgia Bank. Uh, Rather, it's, it's just a collection of, of wires and tiny dipoles spread in fields uh, across, uh, well, across the Netherlands and now across Europe. And these are then connected together by incredibly powerful computers. And the, the main, with a software telescope, the dipoles can image essentially every dipole sees the whole sky at all times. And the trick is in the, in the co- computation and in the software to then correlate these together in such a way as to make images in, in certain directions. And the, the limitations are, are essentially only set by how fast you can transfer data from each station to the central correlator and how quickly you can correlate it all together. I mean, in principle, with a powerful enough computer and fast enough data transports, you could image the entire sky continuously at all times. In reality, uh, computers aren't that fast nowadays. The, the main correlator in the Netherlands is a, a blue gene computer. It's one of the, the fastest 10 computers in the entire world. And we could, but we can image 
reasonable areas of sky, maybe 30 square degrees or so, mm. but, but not the whole sky at once. LOFAR is, is an interferometer. Yes. Now, we've got radio interferometers already. What's different about LOFAR, apart from the fact that you can observe the, the entire sky, although we can do that with other interferometers as well? What's different about LOFAR? Okay, so two things are different about LOFAR. Firstly, it works at, at low radio frequencies. Most of the current interferometers we have work at much higher radio frequencies, around a gigahertz or a few gigahertz, some maybe a little bit under a gigahertz. LOFAR works down in the, in the regime between 30 megahertz and, and 200 megahertz. This is a very new area of the universe, uh, and we expect some different astrophysical phenomena going on there. Um, there are some particular parts of astrophysics one can only observe at these frequencies. For example, Jupiter is a very much a low-frequency emitter, and the Sun, so if you want to do solar system astrophysics, you really need to go to low radio radio wavelengths. You can't do it with high radio frequencies. Um, but one of the other main things, as well as opening up this new window on the universe, is simply the fact that we can image such large areas of sky with, with LOFAR. This makes it a, a fantastic instrument for, for very deep wide surveys, but also as a monitor of the of the sky for any transient phenomena, things that, that go off and come on and go off rapidly, like maybe pulsars or supernova gamma ray bursts. So it, it's going to be very exciting for those. In the context of solving the problem, or at least refining the answer to the problem about AGN feedback and the galaxy luminosity uh, function, uh, how will LOFAR help? So, as I said before, locally in the nearby universe, we've been able to, to do studies that show that the amount of energy coming out of the, the galaxies in the form of, of radio sources, the radio AGM feedback, if you like, is the right amount to prevent cooling. But galaxy formation didn't mostly happen in the, in the nearby universe. Massive galaxies formed at, at much greater distances, higher redshift, back when the universe was only a, perhaps a third or a half of its age, is the, is the peak epoch of, of star and galaxy formation. It's also the peak epoch of AGN activity. So we can see that the, um, nearby the radio sources are, uh, if you like, retaining the, the massive galaxies as being old, red, and dead without any much ongoing star formation or gas accretion. What we really want to understand is um, how this worked at much earlier cosmic epochs. So when did this radio AGM feedback really begin to become important and how did it how did it work at, at high redshifts? And and this is one of the things that, that LOFAR will will be great for because what we need to do this is very much deeper and wider radio surveys than we've ever been able to carry out before. And LOFAR is going to, with its wide survey capabilities, it's going to open up a, a revolutionary new new window for doing this. If LOFAR is going to be a deep survey and it can presumably see out to the redshift values that you require, why do you need such a large area survey? Okay, so so there's uh, there's two reasons for this. Um, Firstly, obviously, the the wider area that you survey, the more sources that you will you will detect. And, and if you want to get very good statistics, and this is what we we need to sample sources at all different radio luminosities at high redshift, then um, then that's what what you need. You need enough galaxies, enough radio sources to do this. Um, but perhaps more fundamentally than this is the fact that 
The universe is made up of all these dark matter clumps that, that grow and, and clump together. And these clump together on many different scales. We've talked about them clumping into, into galaxies. But on much larger scales than this, they, they also, uh, clump together into, into large clusters of galaxies where a large, uh, halos of dark matter all form together and many galaxies form in the same region of space. And in other regions of space, there are what we call voids, where there's very low density of the universe and there's not much, uh, not much galaxy formation going on there. And the, the typical scales for this to happen, uh, typical scales at high redshift is maybe on the, the degree or so scale. Um, so if you want to observe a fair sample of the universe, you really need to be covering many tens of square degrees. If you only observed over the small survey areas that are that are possible with other radio interferometers, fractions of, of square degrees, even if you took many multiple fields, you could by chance be picking only regions with clusters in it or only regions with voids. And you, you don't really you you can never be sure that you're sampling a, a fair region of the universe. Particularly if we want to look at how how these feedback processes depend upon environment, are they different for galaxies within clusters than from galaxies within uh, within sort of more field like regions in the lower density regions? You really have to sample enough volume of the universe to pick out all possible environments that galaxies can live in. Uh, back at a redshift of two, when the universe was about a quarter of its current age. You need to be surveying about 20 to, to 30 square degrees as an absolute minimum if you want to pick up all environments. And that simply isn't possible to do to the required depths with, with the current generation of, of radio interferometers. Right. What's the current status of LOFAR? So LOFAR is under construction at, at the moment. It will be, as, as with any interferometer, it's going to be made up of, of lots of different stations. In, in terms of a standard interferometer, these are all dishes, but with LOFAR it's stations of dipoles. The first station has been operational since 2007, and it's made its first maps of the, the entire northern sky. But obviously with just one station we can't go very deep, and the angular resolution is, is very poor. Um, it's going to have in total about 50 or 60 stations in the end, and, and uh, uh, between a third and a half of those are, are going to be installed in the early part of 2009, and by mid-2009 it should be taking its first survey data, and the whole the whole array should be completed uh, sometime in 2010. You mentioned that there might be some stations built in the UK. Where will they be? Yes, yeah, so um, we have uh, we have already raised enough funding for one station within the UK, and this will be located at, at Chilbolton, which is uh, the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory land, um, midway between Oxford and, and Southampton. Um, we're hoping to get uh, at least another two stations. Uh, if we had two further stations, one will be located at Jodrell and one at, at Lord's Bridge in, in Cambridge. Uh, and we have a funding bid into the, the SDFC, the Science and Technology Facilities Council, uh, in order to, to try to get funding for those and also to try to get some technical uh Manpower to solve some of the some of the issues that uh, that involve working with at low radio frequencies. Well, we wish you all the very best for for that bid and for the research, which I'm sure Lofar will be providing very soon. Thank you very much for talking to us. You're welcome. Thank you. So that's an interesting interview that we had with Philip Best, and it's interesting to think that when you see the first pictures of the Jodrell Bank Observatory site up here in Cheshire, 
the first radio telescopes look very much what LOFAR is going to look like. It's so an, a dipole it, it's an array of dipoles. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a, a field full of uh, wires on sticks, pretty much. And it just happens to be that at these frequencies, LOFAR is going to be uh, built out of these dipoles. And interestingly enough, LOFAR also has some practical applications down here on the Earth. Yeah, what are, what are they? Well, they're, they're currently using the sensors on the LOFAR array that are in the Netherlands to monitor the weather conditions in the fields that they're, they're occupying, which they're sharing fields with potatoes. And so they're doing microclimate observations and helping the farmers to plan where they're going to put pesticides to attack um, potato blight. That's fantastic. So we might see the first results from LOFAR in the Journal of... I think there are already some out. Potato science or something. Yeah, really? I think think they've already got some publications out. Never let it be said that astronomy does not have practical application. And so from an astronomical gift to farmers to astronomical gifts for all of you, we have some suggestions for stocking fillers for the upcoming festivities. Nick, do you want to start us off? Yes. Now, um, listeners in the UK who were listening to Radio 4 this morning, being the 15th of December, would have heard an interview with... Dame Jocelyn Bell Bennell about a book of poetry which she has co-edited. Dame Dame Jocelyn Bell Bennell is of Pulsar fame. She discovered the first Pulsar in 1967. Yes, that's right. She discovered Pulsars. And by the way, if you are interested in hearing the story about how she discovered Pulsars, do check out our June episode of the Jodcast when we were at the National Astronomy Meeting in 2007 in Preston. But that's not the topic right now. Jocelyn Belbonell has co-edited a book of poetry with Maurice Riordan called Dark Matter, Poems of Space. Now, this sounds like a fantastic fusion of astrophysics and poetry, two fields of human endeavor which don't seem to come together that often. So that's a possibility. It is, and it's quite reasonably priced. Although we did check on Amazon just before recording this, and their delivery schedule would have it arriving after Christmas, so other booksellers are available. So I thought that was quite a nice idea. Stuart, what else? What other gift ideas could we suggest to people for those, those present receivers, potential present receivers who are astronomically minded? For the astronomical person in your life. That's right. Well, if people haven't already got one, I would recommend a planisphere. That's always good to know where things are in the sky. It's a card or paper disc that you can turn around and orientate for the time of year and for where you are, and it will tell you what you can see in the sky at different times of the night. And Philips make a very good one. Um, which is available um, all over the place. Hmm. So a gift for yourself or for those people who just want to get out there and perhaps their New Year's resolution is to get out there and learn about the stars. A planisphere is a great start, isn't it? It's pretty much... It is. It's got, it's got a, a, a see-through window or a hole on the top top layer of these two discs stuck together, and underneath there are the, the star uh, maps. Yeah, you can even make your own. There are plans on the internet you can download and print out and then just use a, a brass paper fastener and... and attach the two discs together and you can make your own. That's pretty cool. Oh, one thing I have to point out, though, is that they're usually specific to a latitude. They are. So if you're up here in the UK, for instance, don't send a uh, UK latitude planisphere to your friends down in Australia because that... Well, you can send one. They won't, won't be able to use it very well, but... It'll be a little bit confusing, let's say. It will. So it's a good idea, though. It's a, it's a nice one. For anyone who's starting out in amateur astronomy, it's two very useful things to have... One would be a red LED torch. Mm. That helps you keep your night vision. If you're outside at night and you need to look at your planisphere or your, your star chart or whatever, if you have a red light, it helps keep your night vision and stops it being taken away from you. 
Yes, yeah, so it's a common mistake that people make when they go out for the first time with a, a star chart of whatever stripe and they want to start looking at the stars. They look at the stars for a little bit and then they turn their torch on and look at their map and next thing they're dazzled for the next 15 minutes while. <laughs> exactly. And then you can't, you can't see the Milky Way if, if you're lucky enough to be in a dark enough place to see it. I used to use a, a, a bicycle lamp, just a red bicycle lamp. That was, that was one. Yeah, that's what I tend to do, actually. Mm. However, they're getting quite bright, though, because they're designed to stop people crashing into the back of your bike. So, you know, these ultra-bright red LEDs might be back to the same problem. So, And my second suggestion is a woolly hat. A woolly hat. Fairly simple, but Mm. it keeps your head warm, and it does get very cold if you're out observing at night, especially if you're quite far north or quite far south. Mm. Well, even even during the summer, the night times can get quite cold. Nothing puts you off doing real observing than a head cold. Yeah, and thick socks, actually. Mm-hmm. Or no, they don't put you off observing. No, no, no. It depends if you watch them or not. <laughs> and a thermos. I've often found that, you know, if you're out there for hours at a time and you don't want to go back inside the house for a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and you don't want to ruin that, that night vision you've developed over the last hour or so, then a, a, a good thermos of steaming hot beverage of your choice. Yes, a nice cup of tea. Hmm, a nice hot cup of tea. A nice relaxing cup of tea. <laughs> I have to get those lines in there. Excellent. And the, there you are, there are some simple and inexpensive gift ideas for the astronomer in your life. Okay, so let's move on to the feedback, and we've had four reviews on iTunes this month. We had a review from Rupees42, from Greg Windsurf B, from Falray, and from Bransby in the US, who gave us a really nice review, and they're my favourite person on iTunes this month. <laughs> Thank you very much to everybody who's listening to us via iTunes. And if you do listen to us via iTunes, please do review us on iTunes and give us your ratings. Send us feedback. It really does help. Feedback coming in from the website. Many thanks to Danny Schrader, Raymond Schultz, Sue Wesson, and Sean Mulcahy, who writes that he is looking forward to the next 12 months. Many thanks, Sean. So are we. And feedback from Facebook. Thanks to Dave Hine and Dave McIver. Stuart, you have Twitter feedback. Yeah, we had a couple of comments on Twitter. One from Jamex UK who said that we made a mindless attack on computer programmers in our intro. Did we? At the last episode. I think that was um, one of my lines that Dave gave me. (laughs) It's not my fault, honestly. (laughs) And we also had a comment from Sackett J who wonders whether we have a descendant of Newton's apple tree somewhere around Jodlebank 2. Now... We're I'm not quite sure about that. I'm not sure about that, but we certainly have a lot of apple trees uh, in the Arboretum. Uh, it's part of the national collection of uh, Marlis. So we'll find out for you. We'll have a uh, we'll have a apple-themed uh, episode coming up, <laughs> hopefully with the answer to your question. Uh, well, as long as people download that to the iJod. The iJod. <laughs> and, of course, we've had feedback for the new forum. A few people have signed up to the forum already. We've currently got 27 members of the forum. Yes, so hello to everybody there. And we've people have already been starting a few discussions, um, talking about the supermassive black hole at the centre of the galaxy, which mm-hmm. was announced on the um, European Southern Observatory press release this, this week. Some great observations there. Yes. We had a comment from Rev Aaron, who misses our in- elaborate intros and outros, but he did leave that comment just before we had the last pantomime. So, so to everybody out there who are listening and who have not... Join the forum. Do remember, this is your forum. This is your opportunity to contribute to the Jodcast and discuss things which we mention on the shows or anything that's been bugging you, questions, comments, or discussions that you'd like to start. There are a lot of people who are reading the forum. 
I'm sure, who haven't joined yet, so please, it's a simple matter to register and contribute. And if you do join up, please add a comment to the Introduce Yourself discussion thread. We like to know who people are and say hello to everyone else who's on the forum. Yes. So apart from the forum, if you've got any feedback you'd like to send to us, do remember that there's a number of ways that you can do it. You can send us your feedback via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. You can check out the Facebook Jodcast group at jodcast.net slash Facebook or just search for Jodcast on Facebook. You can join the new discussion forum, as we already mentioned, at forum.jodcast.net. And you can catch up with all the videos on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And that just leaves us to say thank you to Philip Best, to Fiona Thrail for editing the intro and outro, and apologies to Clement Clark Moore for horribly abusing his poetry. Until next episode, Merry Christmas, be safe, be happy, and we'll talk to you January. Jordan. Jordan. And then, in a twinkling, I heard at the start the swift introduction of each little part. As I drew in my head and was turning around, on came the listener feedback abound. With postcards and notes written on our Facebook wall, and emails and news from the forum and all. Then on to the interview, onwards with Perk, to listen to scientists talk on their work. And ask an astronomer, and all of the banter, delivered to me as if by old Santa. So many more things that I'd like to know. They'll just have to wait to the next Jogcast show. I listened and listened and laughed with the hosts, banishing all of the Christmas Eve ghosts. The cookies and milk I had left filled my belly, and shook when I laughed like a bowl full of jelly. But then all too soon was the end of the issue. A tear filled my eye, and I reached for a tissue. For now I knew well that I now had a while, for the next show to make it to this Delafile. And then to my joy, a memory stirred the Jodcasts in video as well. Oh my word! Bite-sized astronomy knowledge right here, enough there to keep me informed till New Year. I sprang up so joyful and booted the net. The issue thus finished gave me such regret. But as I can see all the shows on the site, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night.